Welcome to the Invincible Innovation Show, the podcast for changemakers. Each week, I talk to the most fascinating entrepreneurs and innovation leaders about innovation, strategy, and design. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to an extraordinary episode of Invincible Innovation. I'm your host, Adima Zorkario, product design and AI expert, and today, We explore the intersection of AI and military use. In this episode, we have a special guest who will share insights on the opportunities and risk of integrating AI into military processes and systems. Now let's dive right in and welcome our guest. Hey, Jim, how are you? Hi, great, how are you? I'm good. Jim Ankak is an author, consultant, and former head of innovation for the US Navy SEALs. Wow, it sounds really interesting. And we're live on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook, and you're so invited to join the discussion and ask questions. And before we dive into AI and what is the meaning of AI in, in military, could you explain what does a head of innovation for U.S. Navy SEALs do? What does this role involve? Yeah, so I, I managed a portfolio of research and development efforts as well as uh, disruptive technologies that we, that we could forecast to be impactful in the next five to 10 years. So we less we focus less on things that were the here and now and more about the uh, then and when kind of scenarios. And a lot of the things I focused on while I was still in were predominantly uh, artificial intelligence based as well as robotics focused. And when we're saying uh, artificial intelligence, we're saying like system using these algorithms or, We're always like what comes to my mind is always these robots or killer robots coming, or it's not only that that what it's just what I imagine. Yeah, I think that's a lot of uh, sci-fi and the media teaching us what that should be versus what it really is. A lot of AI originally just comes in the form of automation and creating and simplifying certain difficult tasks to really focus on it when it comes to the robotic standpoint, you look at, artificial intelligence and robotic systems to fulfill the three D's as they call them, the dull, the dirty, and the dangerous. The things that a person doesn't want to do, that's what you develop a robot to do. And those, and that goes all the way from being going into areas that you don't want to be to mitigating risks so that the person isn't, isn't at risk themselves. Mm, makes sense. So how has AI transformed military operations? I think, well, so there are, A lot that that's a pretty broad question yeah. there's a there's things that you think are happening and then there are other things that are actually happening and the <laughs> okay. delta between the two and a lot of times we like to think that certain organizations and capabilities are much more advanced than they really are and I would say that there are pockets of excellence where you have certain capabilities that are developing extremely rapidly however there are other areas where they're lagging behind not because of technological advancement or because of the Uh, theoretical or physics-based modeling isn't there. It's because the process by which the governments or the uh, acquisitions processes acquire new technology is really what slows it down. And that comes down to bridging a, a cultural and a geographical divide between the new technology and the end user. And this is true of any type of new product in the, any commercial space. And usually people refer to it as the law of diffusion of innovation. And you have this parabolic curve that That goes up from the bottom and works its way up and then down on the other side and then the first side of it you have your early adopters think of those as people that stand in line the day that apple comes out with a new cell phone 
And then there are those, and, and then you work your way up to the masses where it basically reaches the point where the vast majority of people are accepting it. And then on the downslope, you have the laggards and people that are just comfortable with what they're doing and, and wanting to hold on to their technology as they previously used it. Well, in the military, it's the same way. I would, I would lean that the vast majority are, they want to be early innovators and early adopters, but the process slows them down. And yeah. so with a- AI, that's a big hurdle. Is there are certain areas where it's able to be employed quickly and other areas where we need that cultural divide to be um, yeah. shortened? So uh, the way that I perceive a military is from my experience and what I understand about the Israeli military, but it might be very, sim- very similar or not to the U.S., but it's a very big organization as any other big organizations. The, the flow of processes are really, really slow and bureaucracy Uh, politics within the organization, um, especially if it's something which is really new, it will have lots of, um, I know, uh, challenges on the way. That's how I would see it. But for me, it makes sense that maybe when we're saying AI and military, there is this aspect of the, what does that mean when the military has this kind of force? After all, it has two, two meanings. One is to protect and the other one is to attack, I guess. So maybe people are more reluctant to use it because of that? That's, that's rarely the case, mainly because before you even get to the point where you can implement most of that technology, it, the, the, the converse is actually more dangerous than the implication of AI. And what I mean by that is one of the first feathers in my hat when it came to this particular job it was a was when we put the first ai drone in combat and on that on that particular mission there was one building in which they were going to go in and then they didn't have enough people to go into this other building so they sent the robot over to that building well right at the doorway they found that someone had uh, set up an improvised explosive device on the door um inside the area when they'd flown they'd gone in but because the drone flew in and because a person did it they're they were not put at risk because they were immediately able to identify the threat that was there. And they, they didn't, and that there's two sides to that. There were still people in the building. And so because they used the drone, they were able to identify right away where the, the not only that the people sh- that we should send people in, but we should find a way to get them out. So they're not at risk as well. And so that mm-hmm. mitigation of risk to the war fighters and civilians is the critical aspect of that. Is it, it's so much better than sending in, a missile right because you you can do the collateral damage is potential is so high you don't want that you want to find ways to decrease casualties on any side because you just yeah. want to you want to complete the mission you don't want to hurt people as much as people think that's the case that is not the case nobody wins wars by hurting innocent people so what you're saying that the side of protection is much more um the essence of the AI use right now than the part of attacking someone in that case, yeah. because you're I protecting think, the soldiers in that case. And the civilians. I keep that in mind. It's not, you're not just, the soldiers obviously is the primary, the primary protection, but in, in fulfillment of the mission. However, nobody wants to hurt people that don't need to be hurt because that's a separate fight you're going to be fighting. You don't want to be dealing with that. Yeah. So what would you say you, you're saying, like most people have this imagination, what is AI and robotics and what does that mean for a military use? So what would you say to someone who has this killer robot in his mind? And um, I know that robots are not as capable as most people think, and yep. they have lots of limitations, but yep. what would you say? 
two sides of that. I would I would go with off of where we're at. I give two historical examples from modern history. One is the war that took place between Armenia and Azerbaijan in 2020 when they were fighting over the Nagorno-Karabakh region that, that lines between those two countries. And the other example I'd give would be Ukraine. Uh, both of those countries used robotic systems and unmanned robots to, to solve a lot of their problems. They're just not quite as advanced as people think. However, in the situation with Armenia and Azerbaijan, Azerbaijanis were preparing for 20 years to take back that land that they felt was taken from them by the Armenians after the Soviet Union collapsed. But the Azerbaijanis, unlike the Armenians, had allies in both Turkey and Israel. And so they were buying resources from both of those countries, specifically in, in from, from Turkey, they're buying their Bayraktar drones, which are the same drones the Ukrainians are using, which is kind of like a smaller version of a pred, a predator drone like, that America uses. And then they also were using Israeli loitering munitions, which are these little drones that can fly around. And then basically it's like a bomb that flies around the air and then you just send it on where one it wants to hit. Well, the Azerbaijanis were very intelligent in the way that they coordinated their usage of their Bayraktar and their the Israeli drones that they had, whereas the Armenians only had legacy Russian and Soviet systems, which Azerbaijanis also had because both those countries were also buying from Russia. And what you're seeing there isn't so much the application of the AI and the robotics in there, but more or less a, a new innovative way of employing diplomatic relations between regional allies and the implementation of that technology in a unique way. That sort of information, though, leads to the development of new, what, are called, what we call the military's TTPs or tactics, techniques, and procedures. Those are all just ways in which the technology is employed. And that's that's really where the bulk of innovation is taking place. And that's where the robotic systems learn more efficient ways to operate so that they decrease the number of interactions the human needs to have with the robot, which is really where you're, the goal is you don't want to have a system that requires a high cognitive load for the end user. We don't need the end user being overwhelmed with tasks and information and things they need to be doing. They, need to, they want to be able to just send it off to do its job, not think about it, get the information from it when it's relevant, and then go about their business. And that goes for commercial and military or police law enforcement applications as well. You, you put people at risk, the more they are, they are overwhelmed by the information that they're having to gather from these systems and to be able to automate those steps and then give autonomy to it so it can make its own decisions um, decreases that. It also makes things safer as, as much as people want to default to uh, Terminator movies and Skynet and all that kind of stuff. It it's, we're so far away from that on the robotic side when it comes to the robot's ability to, understand its environment that it's less of a risk than we would think but also at the same time it, it i wish it were more advanced because it would actually be it would mitigate more risk so what are the potential risks you're saying that you don't have these it's not as much as people think what i guess there are risk and vulnerabilities associated with ai in military operations and what is the meaning of that and how can we mitigate it if there is any risk it depends upon what the application is. And most of the time when we think of an autonomous drone or we think of robots that are able to make their own decisions, we assume they can perceive their environment at the same level that humans can and then make decisions, high functioning decisions the same way a human can. And they can't. Yeah. There are too many what are referred to as abstraction layers. There are too many different contingencies built in place that need to be accounted for. Think of it this way. When... Our brains develop from the time that we're babies 
we interact with the world through touch and through all of our senses. We grab things with our hands, we put things in our mouths, we look at things. And as we do that, our brains are creating a model, a statistical model of what to predict when we go, when we see and when we touch those things. As adults, we finally go into a room. We know what a particular material is supposed to feel like because we look, we see wood. We know that that wood's supposed to feel a certain way, the grains of the wood. We see paint on a wall. We know what that was supposed to smell like. These are all things that are built off of a model. But also the ability for us to process those has taken place over millions of years of evolution as just as a sentient being. That's just how we develop. Robots are learning the same way. And they have to learn at different speeds and different levels. Now they can they can go into synthetic environments. Like think of like a, a, a video game made in Unreal Engine, like Call of Duty or something like that. Those games and those gaming engines are literally where robots learn. They take the same software that the robot runs on and they put it into those interfaces, and then they have it run a whole bunch of different missions, and then they learn from those missions. They optimize their performance, and then they load that software onto a drone and they have a flight's mission. Once again, though, the abstraction layers are limited. It can only do so many, and there's only so many contingencies that they can account for. And they have to build that into their matrix to determine their determination matrix so that it can make better decisions. And so the more dynamic environments you throw at these robots, the, the, the poorer they're going to perform because they can only do so many things. Now, the more environments we put them in, the more they learn, the better they're going to be. That all depends upon the back-end infrastructure and how well the companies develop that. Most companies that develop drones nowadays, they build them, they send them out to the end user, but they never get any feedback. They never get any of the, of the, of the data that's being collected. None of that goes, with exception of one major commercial company. Uh, mm -hmm. Most companies don't do that. But that's there's a reason why the United States no longer uses that commercial company. They're actually banned for government use. Because be they, it's, not, it's a regulatory thing? Because you should not use this data? Because it, the, well, it's a Chinese company called DJI, which owns oh. 75, 80% of the China, of the market. But in order to create an account or to set up or buy your drone, you have to, you have to, you have to put in all your personal information and then have your data stored on their repositories that all exist in China. Mm. And then it's also a government subsidized company. So if it's a government subsidized company and the government has direct access to the data, it's the same problem that the U.S. government and other governments are having with TikTok is right. the data is being placed in a collective repository that can be accessed by a government, a nation state. And that is, that's a major privacy problem. Right. I guess that most, most armies would not share their data, which is the, the way that they do combat, the, the, what they gather and what's the information that they have with external, any kind of external companies. It doesn't matter if it's Chinese or not. And I guess that that's why doesn't it needs to use maybe games because information is not available for them really yeah exactly it, well it, it so there is nobody everybody wants their data to be secure and they want to know where their data is being stored that's the bottom line doesn't matter what you're doing everybody wants everybody yeah. wants to that peace of mind but not giving being given the full information or being told on the back end who has access to it is, is a major problem Yeah, and, and after all, it gives you an advantage, advantage over your enemies. If you know something, if they know what you know, it's not an advantage anymore, I guess. Also, also another thing to keep in mind, though, is, is AI can only grow and enhance its capability with access to data. And it's not so much that the AI algorithm makes it, that makes it impactful. 
It's the amount of data that someone is able to access in order to optimize their performance. So if you are willingly feeding somebody else all of that data and they can build the data, they can build their models more efficiently off of that data, you are handing them an advantage. Yeah. And that is that is the crutch of every single one of these issues with AI. Same thing that's going on right now with ChatGPT and the large language models is where are they getting the data from and do they have the rights to that data? And right. artists, for example, are very upset right now because people are using their techniques and their likeness to create new things in these and these AI databases without their consent. And so there's a lot of lawsuits in place right now. And the drawback of that, though, is the more, let's say you go back and you remove all of those particular accesses and you're not allowed to use the, the database is no longer allowed to use those models. The model becomes less efficient and the, and the AI is yeah. less powerful. Yeah, And so it eventually leads to something called model collapse. And that's where the it goes into a feedback loop. And the, and the, the model is creating data that itself has created. And then it's less efficient each time. And as time goes by, it degrades. Yeah. And, you'll... and I guess that what you're saying, that this is one of the challenges for someone who wants to develop an AI for military use. He has limited resources of real data. And therefore, it cannot grow and succeed in, in that ca capacity as we imagine it could have. Yeah, so there, there's it's, it's, mass, it's the aspect of access to data. It's also an appropriate DevSecOps pipeline within the IT infrastructure that can support that data being moved appropriately, being stored in appropriate locations. And then the AI algorithms being able to, to pull from that information and then individuals being able to annotate it as well. And that's the critical point. A lot of people don't realize that in order to have a, an AI model work well, you need someone to literally annotate that data. I'm not talking about a robot, I'm talking about a person. Let's say, for example, we were doing a computer vision facial recognition software off of the video you and I are using right now. I would wanna be able to say, this is Jim, and then click on that face. Yep, 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 every single image, and confirm that. Somebody physically needs to do that. And then eventually the model gets so good that it's just a confirmation process and then it becomes statistically better than a, than a human does. But in order to get there, you have to literally hire annotators to, to do that. Wow. And that's that's another part of the AI industry people don't realize is there are literally people in buildings or at home just clicking images all day long. Yeah. And I guess that the what we're saying, first we talked about the data. And the second thing is that when we're thinking about decision-making, uh, you would think, okay, should I drop the bomb or not? But decisions could be just, should I go straight or to the side? Would I? Is it a, a, a tree or is it just a dark area in, in front of me? Or it's like, it's not the decisions that we always think about when we think about AI or robotics in military. Yeah, in that particular case, you would be, there's there's been updates to the way that I know the United States government has considered it. There's a, a directive that's called 3000.09 which is the directive for autonomous weapon systems. And it was recently be updated as of January. Before, a human always had to be the final decision maker at the very, very last state to say yes or no. And that is no longer the case. If they can build up the reliability of how it performs at the end state, then the decision is not made at the final moment. The decision is made when you launch it. So it's a different timeline, a different perspective of how you see the problem. So for example, it's the same problem as if someone launched a missile or they fired a rocket, the decision is made when you pull the trigger. The decision right. isn't made when it when it hits the object. Right. And so it's on the responsibility of the individual who makes the decision, not on the robotic system itself. 
And so the robot can make the decision 30 minutes later, but you made that decision to let it go 30 minutes out. This, it's the exact same way that you would have an interaction with a squad of, of, of soldiers that have no radios. If I send a squad of soldiers up to a hill to take a hill and they have no radio and they start moving up, I can't stop them once they're going. How am right. I going to communicate with them? It's literally the exact same situation. You should not have sent them to begin with. So right now, it means that I could send a drone with a bomb and I would say, okay, once you find this and that, you drop the bomb. And 30 minutes later, he would just execute what I told him to do. I don't need to press something, right? No, this same, is what you mean? Same thing as if I'd launched a missile from the ocean and to hit, a land some, hit it on land somewhere else 30 minutes later, because that's how long it takes for it to fly there. Same exact same scenario. It's just, it already knew in advance what the target was. And in this other case, it already knows what the target is as well. It's just there's a little more nuance as to what the, what the system is doing in between. But effectively, the, the, the responsibility falls on the individual who chooses to, let, to, to send it. Hmm. And so the concern we have is, well, maybe the robot will make a decision other than that. Remember that conversation I had about annotators and somebody right. who's constantly clicking on all that stuff? Well, humans are about 96% reliable when it comes to that. You wouldn't employ one of these systems unless it was way higher. I'm talking 97, 98%, meaning that it's going to make a better decision than human will off of the information that it has. Oh, a few years back, there was an example. There was this uh, when WikiLeaks first started becoming popular. There was this video of a helicopter strike in Iraq, where you had these individuals going into a building, and they thought this one individual was carrying a rocket. Well, the rules of engagement at the time stated that if someone is running around with a rocket or a perceived weapon in the streets, you were clear to engage. That was the rule of engagement as the generals and the area had dictated because of the threat. Of what was going on this was in 2007 very very dangerous time in that country well in the wikileaks video it shows that the individual they ended up hitting was a photographer and what he was carrying on his back was a tripod and not an actual rocket but because of the quality of imagery and because of the human looking at it and the flaws of the human's ability to differentiate between what is a tripod and a rocket they ended up conducting a strike on on a civilian a robot with a proper machine learning model is actually has a higher probability of not making that mistake. And so the, the thing is, we can come back and say, it's because we don't culturally trust those systems. But the rigor that goes through to determine that that thing is making the right decision is significantly higher than the rigor that goes to determine that a human can make the right decision. And yeah, you because see- Because we trust humans. We trust we humans, trust but yeah. really, should we? <laughs> There's a lot That's of humans I've worked with. I would yeah. not trust. <laughs> so um, it's the but, same with with the aut autonomous cars, right? We do mm -hmm. accidents all the time as much as I know. but if if an autonomous car would do an accident, it it's would be news. like, wow, wow, wow. And there it goes is all over accident. the news. Everybody's like, these things can't be trusted. And then that same day, 40 people get in a car accident, but none of them are on the news. right? Yeah, so we're just used to humans making mistakes. We're not used to robots making mistakes. We're like, well, the scale's not there. What about when they start proliferating higher numbers? Well, actually, they'll probably have, they'll have even less accidents because they'll get better. And it's just, they need those numbers. And that's the thing that people don't realize is, once again, that conversation I had before about the development of your neocortex, the ability for you to create models, and the ability for you to adapt an environment comes through time. We're expecting those things to evolve and adapt in, in minutes, 
relative to humans doing it over centuries. And right. I'm not saying it's unfair. And I'm, I'm not saying boo-hoo for the, for the robot. What I'm saying is that the robot eventually will get to a state where it's better than humans doing certain things. And that's not something to be afraid of. Once again, dull, dirty, and dangerous. These are things that we don't want to be doing anyway. Right. And uh, I mean, there is the joke that systems like mid journey and ChatGPT are, are, are doing all of the, all the creative arts and things like that. Now oh, the they're fun stuff. Humans out. They're doing all the fun stuff and humans are doing the bad stuff, but right. that's, that's just how the, the people are using the tools. And if you use the tool effectively, it simplifies your daily life, but you still have to be good at your job. If you're not good at your job and you use these tools and you, it, it becomes a supplement. It, it, people will see right through the fact that you are, using these things inappropriately and yeah but the, the benefit there is tremendous because it, it decreases the amount of time that you spend doing busy work but people seem to be very excited about doing busy work and i think that's an it's going to hurt their job if they don't do it and it's like well if that's all you were doing is busy work then what is your value and the value to you is this a value to you does it, do you enjoy doing busy work a lot of people don't they want to do something that means more to them and then this would free them up to do that um another example just while i'm on it when it comes to autonomous systems and autonomous robotics is there's always this contradictory almost hypocritical conversation when it comes to automating systems or automating capabilities for example in the military we're always saying we don't have enough people and then on another side some people are saying well i don't want the robot to do my job well if you don't have enough people and you don't want the robot to do your job that just means you get an 80 hour work week Wh which one do you like do you want to have it supplement you and help you with the amount of people you have? Or do you not want it at all and just always be in, have a shortfall of, of, of personnel and capability? There's a happy medium there. And that there's no reason why we should constantly see it as something replacing us. Yeah. Oh. Um, it's my dog. We have new neighbors. So sorry for all the listeners. She's like crazy about it. Um, so what I'm saying is, what I thought you would say that the downside is that we want to protect our soldiers and that they won't get hurt. But I guess the other side wants to protect their soldiers. So I guess that it means that both sides would try to avoid any kind of hurting their people. And both sides would eventually decide to go for the robots when they're working really well and they have less mistakes and maybe in the end, what we'd have is like two sides of robots fighting each other. Well, the, the, the aspect of unmanned systems hitting, attacking each other is an inevitability. That, that is how it's going to be. Now, the other thing, though, is the ethics of that. Now, I'm not, there is the assumption that both sides would want to mitigate risk. And as we're seeing in Ukraine and Russia, that is just not the case with certain countries. Some countries just do not care about inflicting pain on the other country. It is actually a tactic. But it is it is a brutal old world tactics tactic when it applies to taking another country that you just raise everything that's there and start fresh. Um, in the modern world, though, I don't see how that is going to be an effective policy financially. It just doesn't make any sense at all that you would completely eliminate all of your infrastructure when you yourself as a country don't have any money. And then you're going to go in and want to rebuild that once you take the land because you're going to have to pay for all of it. Instead, the people that you just conquered remain in squalor. And you're not able to just that, that doesn't make any sense to me and the the concept of actually seizing countries nowadays doesn't really make a whole lot of sense it's not really a feasible thing anymore because 
you it, it takes so many resources to do it and then if the culture of that particular society does not want to uh, adhere to whatever it is that you are uh, 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 implying to them it's eventually going to collapse i mean it, it, it's painful as it is to say that having fought in both countries but that look at iraq iraq is not as bad as it, it could have been but afghanistan is another perfect example if society internal to the country does not want to accept what we are what is being offered to them and they want to revert back to a different state that's just how it's going to be but ai is an extension of the values and culture and ethics of the society that created it Mm-hmm. And that's an important thing to keep in mind is if you have yeah. proper mores and values built in and and equitable and ethical decision making processes in the, in the, in the, as you create it, you're going to come up with better results. However, yeah. that goes back to, once again, rules of engagement, tactics, techniques, tactics, techniques and procedures and how you actually want to do actually implement the effect that you want forward. Um, what you'll see, though, is is really in AI is, an, like I said, an extension of the culture of the, of the country that is implementing it. Yeah. So we have um, Yasha from LinkedIn, Yasha Harari saying better bots than body bags, 100%. So he, he, he told us, thanks Yasha for, for what you're saying. And I, I think it really makes sense when you think about it. On one side, you have this like, you know, apocalypse thing that A, a robot would be a policeman or a military or whatever and he would attack you and only countries that do have this technology or money to develop this technology would have this capacity and on the other side you're saying okay is it better for us to have humans doing that instead and when we're thinking about it this way it makes more sense not to use humans for this kind of usage I, I'm a big proponent of it for several different reasons. I can give you one cultural example from the United States. And then this camp, this happened in 2020. There was a woman by the name of Brianna Taylor, who Brianna Taylor was at home with her I don't know if it was boyfriend or husband. But the police were there to serve a warrant to try and search for, um, I think it was drugs. Well, long story short, the police entered, entered and there was, there was, and then she ended up getting killed and her, the, 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 the male in the house did not. What happened in that particular case is the police got to the home and there's two different policies in place that were in direct conflict with each other. One was... Just a minute. I'm closing yep. the door because she's driving me crazy. I'm sorry for that. Yeah. You're good. You're good. So there was two laws that were in place in that, in that state. I think it was in Kentucky. One was what you're called like the stand your ground. You have the right to defend your home. And so if you have a gun and you're in the home, you have the right to defend yourself, then you can have a gun. The other is the police had this thing called a no-knock warrant where they could just kick down the door and then try to arre- uh, serve a warrant or arrest you. Now, wow. those two things are direct conflict. So if a person who doesn't tell you who they are kicks down your door into your house and you have the right to defend yourself, who's in the right if one gets shot? The answer is nobody wins, right? It was a right, terrible right. – the state did a terrible job in, in, in forecasting this as an issue, right? The police either should not have been allowed to do that or should not have been allowed the castle doctrine, which allows you sure. to protect your home. Now, imagine this scenario. Instead of the police – running up, kick down the door without saying anything, and then them waking up. Imagine if they knocked on the door, nobody came to the door, and then when they opened it, they sent a drone inside. And the drone begins searching the house to determine where people are, what's going on, and the people, the police officers, offset themselves by about 100 yards, and they are behind a vehicle, protected somewhere, and then the drone goes in and gets a good visual of what's going on, And so then there's the concern of like, well, what if they're destroying evidence? What if all these things are happening? It's telegraphing your coming, your entering. 
Well, no matter what happens, if you're in a law enforcement scenario in the United States, they know they're going to know you're going to be there within moments anyway. And yes, you have certain cases in which you can, they might destroy evidence or something, but in reality, they can only do so much. But if you literally send a camera in there and it's filming them doing things, that the concern isn't there. So now if they attack anything, they're attacking a robot. That's fine. You can knock the robot down all day long. It's better that you destroy the robot than the law enforcement personnel or the innocent civilians get hurt. And I'm so much happier if you have something that goes in between the two people, almost like a mediator, and you interact with the robot rather than the emotions of the people, and you're going to have a much better result because of it. Another example is that they did a big study where this guy was going around to talk to the police forces that might have some kind of cultural bias or racial bias. And he was teaching them about how they shouldn't have these biases, reasons why. And they saw zero change in the amount of negative um, interactions put between police and the others. However, when they changed their rule of engagement or the tactic, technique and procedure and taught them to count to 10 whenever they reached for their weapon, or rather when they drew their weapon, they, they took a deep breath and counted to 10. They saw like a 70% decrease in the number of shootings that they had. And it was less about and the individual that did the study. He said it was less about saving their soul and more about mitigating risk to people. And the robots can do the same thing by allowing you to take a moment, to take a breath, to gain situational awareness, to determine whether or not something actually is a legitimate threat. And if it is, they can't hit you anyway because you're nowhere close to them. And if the robot gets taken out, absolutely fine. So I'm a big proponent of this. But in the news, sometimes you'll see it come up like, I saw this on uh, in America of CNN, right? And, and they saw this on CNN where they're like, well, if police have these drones, what are the privacy issues of them flying and looking at people's backyards? And it's like, I find those kind of silly statements as distractions from the actual potential for the capability of the, of the solution, as well as the actual problem. And the actual problem is that you always want context. Without context, you're looking through the world, uh, there's soda straw. And that soda straw is myopic, it's limited, and it, it keeps you from actually understanding the true problem. And the same thing with like body cams on police officers, you're only seeing what they're seeing immediately in front of them. You're not seeing the whole context. And when you can see the whole context, you can make better decisions. You can take a breath. And this is what we do in the military. We don't rush into situations. We gather intelligence first so we can make the best decision possible so that we can minimize the threat. And and this is all about keeping things from uh, devolving into something very, very negative and much worse than what you initially intended. And and that comes down to have, being able to, to use these robots to their advantage. Yeah. I think that like two or three years ago, I went to a conference where they had uh, Boston Dynamics, the these like dogs that are walking, you know, and they had this um, they had this video of them dancing and everybody was like, yeah, they're so cool. But it, it's really frightening just to think about them. And the two um, scientists came to the to stage and they said that. It, nobody saw how many times that they made mistakes or they danced really like they fell while dancing and they just saw the, the last perfect solution or perfect dance in the end. And they're always laughing when they're thinking about it because in most cases, people don't know all the limitations that these like robots have and they just see the dance or the video in the end and it looks like wow it's going to be really really powerful we, we we love to anthropomorphize robots we love to think that they are just like humans and they can make the same decisions as humans and that that is just not the case once i said too many abstraction layers 
And there was one video that Boston Dynamics made of a whole bunch of different robots dancing and all this stuff. That took 18 months. Wow. 18 months. Yeah, they say to laugh at a lack of time. And, and yeah. they always, they said that they laughed all the time because each time the robot fell, they said, okay, uh, humanity is doomed. And then they fell again and fell again, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not as it, people think. It'll eventually get to the point where it can do lots of things. But just because, so the problem is, so for example, if you, when you're combining abstraction layers, that's when it starts becoming very interesting. However, we're just not really in a state where we could do that really, really well. Um, so for some people who tried using ChatGPT and large language models to give word-based direction to a robot to implement certain actions, but the robot, any robot has to be able to do, really it's four things, but I like to simplify and say three things. So it's, it needs to be able to see, it needs to be able to think, and it needs to be able to act. The more advanced way of saying see, think, and act is it needs to be able to perceive its environment. So it needs sensors that allows it to see what's going on around it, whether that be LIDAR or radar or electro-optical cameras or infrared cameras, whatever it is. It needs to be able to see its environment. It needs to be able to localize. It needs to be able to have an understanding of what it's looking at so that it knows where it is relative to other objects in that same space. It needs to be able to path plan so it can get around those things. And then it needs to be able to execute that action. Once again, see, think, and act. And most robots nowadays either don't have a very good perception capability, they have limited cognition, so it can only process so well, and it can only do so many actions. And so you have to develop all of those areas at the same time for it to get to the point where it can make a whole lot of better decisions. And Boston Dynamics is a good example because they have a ton of sensors on there, which suck the life out of its battery, and it can only perform for so long. I've worked a lot with legged robots over the years, and... and It's interesting looking at the, the functionality of them because there's so many different approaches to the problem. And Boston Dynamics is a, they're an incredibly capable company with a lot of good robotic systems. But they did something interesting in the, in recently as they signed this document stating that they would never weaponize their system. And one of the other companies that signed really? with them was, yeah, there was enough, they won't do anything with the military other than, other than like a federal, like, um, like firefighting and things like that. They won't or search and rescue. They won't do any military related stuff. They, they absolutely will. You're not allowed to weaponize them. However, another one of the companies that signed their public declaration was a company in China called Unitree. And if you look up any of the Chinese military uh, um, demonstrations of them interacting with robots, they're all running around with Unitree robots. It's the exact same robot. And so it's funny that they make this public declaration and then they literally would sell them to the military and then have them running around. And then there was a picture of, of a Russian event where they had a rocket on the back of it. And they put a bunch of like, It was like a bunch of like cloth kind of stuff on the legs of the robots. I have it put, it's on my Instagram. I have a video of it and it's mm -hmm. totally a unitary robot. It's absolutely what it is. And it's just funny because it's, it's farcical that they would do that. Whereas another company in the United States called ghost robotics, they're just like, look, our robot does this. We are not going to sell it to you with that on there. If you choose to implement that, put it on there, that's your choice. And so they don't, they're just looking at it as a product and they're just selling it as a product as opposed to trying to overly state their moral virtue which is almost hypocritical because people are going to do, if they're going to sell it as a product, people are going to buy it and do things with it anyway. Sure. Um, yeah. It, it, it sounds like um, I, I'm not, I'm not responsible, but you give like, I, I don't know, um, matches to, to kids and you're saying like, this could make fire, but you, but I'm not, I didn't tell you to do so and just take it and see what, what's going on in the end. Yeah. It's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. I'm not responsible. <laughs> I, exactly. I went to, I grew up in a very, uh, in a very, uh, I wouldn't say violent area, but there, there was a lot of, it was kind of a sketchy area that I grew up in. And I grew up in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And the high school I went to, there were more incidents of people being um, 
uh, hurt with pencils than there were anything else. Really? Yes. I would just <laughs> imagine. I'm thinking people get oh, hor horrible <laughs> situations. Yeah, no, I'm not even kidding you. But you're not taking pencils away from students, right? Yeah. Anything, anything can be used as, for for bad intent with bad intentions. It's just that doesn't stop us from innovating and moving forward. We just got to recognize and then mitigate and compensate, right? Yeah, makes sense. You opened my mind about that because the first thing that comes to my mind is all the popular science and movies, and what comes to your mind is it's very threatening, and um, and it makes sense that we would de-risk our soldiers and our um, people want to protect us um, and not put them in risk, which is not really needed. Absolutely. There, we are, within the special operations community, we always state that the human is more important than hardware. That the person that is going into the operation costs more. It costs millions of dollars to train one individual in that community to do any one singular job. Why would you want to put that person in a spot where they're guaranteed to be killed? And there was a, when I, before I came over to work in the special operations community, I was an analyst in one of the countries that I worked on was, um, well, I don't know if I could say, anyway, this country had a very large anti-air infrastructure and had a lot, a lot of subterranean infrastructure. And we assessed that within this country, the casualty rate would be incredibly high. And so the first thing that came to my mind was how do I make sure that the war fighters going in can extend their range and capability without putting themselves at risk? And I kept coming back to robotic systems. I kept coming back to autonomous robots. And the decision-making and ethical application of those is obviously at the forefront of how well the mission that you're trying to do. But there's not a future in which those robots are not, not being employed. And we have to compensate for other people doing the same thing. Um, recently, a general in the United States got in trouble because he, he basically was saying that the application of AI would be based upon the Judeo-Christian ethics that really that our country was based on. And people got on his case about saying, how dare you involve religion in this particular conversation? But that wasn't really the problem. It was, it was such a, it's just so, it's such an American argument. The, yeah. um, that, but the reality, what he was saying though, is that the, the ethics and the value of human life is at the forefront of our implementation of these particular capabilities and the decision-making processes as it should be. And that certain other places don't have that value and that should be a concern. And so we should be preparing ourselves for that. Yeah. Yeah, I understand the, the connection between the ethics or the culture of, of, a, of, a, of a society and the decision they do in, in, in the military. So it really makes sense to take that into consideration. And, and I think that most people would not decide that anyone that they know, of course, would go to the army. No one that they, they, they really love and care about would go and, and risk themselves in that aspect. And, and most people think that it's inevitable. But if it is inevitable, you could do something about, about it and it's not inevitable. We should do all that we can in order to, to protect them. Absolutely. Yeah. So I know that you are an author too, and you wrote a series of books uh, about the skilled military technician facing the evolution, uh, evolving global threat of an international armed race for artificial intelligence. Could you tell us about your book? <laughs> this completely contradicts everything that we just talked about. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so I've written I'm, I'm, I've written one book and I've, it's gonna be a part of a series, but the first, it's called The Hawk Enigma. It's based on a warfighter who's dealing with different trials of post-traumatic stress. And he starts hearing voices uh, in his dreams and he thinks that he's starting to lose his mind. 
And at the same time, across the ocean in Japan, some scientists are working on a form of artificial intelligence called the God algorithm. And two of the scientists go missing. And this individual gets dragged in to try and find them. Uh, but I take a very, very different angle on this conversation than is anticipated. I think the one thing that people think of when I think of AI, this almost always happens. They think, okay, you're talking about AI in a book. That means there's going to be some disembodied voice and most likely some self-aware robotic system that exists inside of the internet. That's absolutely not what this book is about. This book actually goes into more about how real world application of AI and predictability. And there's a bit of sci-fi in there just for fun. But I will say that at least 95% of the technology I reference in that story is completely real. It feels like it's fake because you don't see it, but it is completely real. And I, on my website, under the blog posts, I have, you go to my older blog posts, I talk about the exact technology that comes up in my book. Things like augmented reality contact lenses. Yes, they are real. Uh, I talk about uh, different types of robots. And then I also talk about something called optogenetics, which is actually what led me to the creation of the book to begin with. I was at a symposium at Caltech on artificial intelligence, and there were a number of presenters. And one of the presenters was someone named Viviana Gradanaru, and she's the head of the Gradanaru lab at Caltech, and they specialize in optogenetics. And I had been wanting to write something for a while. I just didn't know what it was. And she got up and she was discussing how they were using machine learning algorithms like AI to identify the appropriate protein for a particular patient. And what they were doing with these proteins that were derived from algae is they would put them inside of a virus and they would inject the virus into a patient. Now they were doing this on rats at the time. They weren't doing this on people, but that virus would then carry the protein up into the brain. Now keep in mind, we, we have viruses going through us all the time. The vast majority of them are non malevolent. They are, they have no impact on our bodies at all, but these particular viruses operate solely just as a carrier and they carry the protein into your brain and they plant themselves into the lipids of your brain. And then when they are, when you have a particular frequency of light is emitted outside of your skull, they, the phototaxis inside of those lipids move and it changes the way the synaptic activity in your brain operates. So they can treat things like Parkinson's disease. They can help regenerate vision in people's eyes by doing this. And the moment I heard about that, I'd never heard of optogenetics before. It's like the entire plot for my book just popped in my head. And then yeah. I started writing. And six months later, I'd finished the first draft. And then it took a while later because I was still active duty. And I wanted to wait until I was retiring from the military to publish. But then I mm -hmm. finished the book. And I, I found out yesterday, actually, that uh, I was I'm a, I'm a finalist in several different uh, book awards. One of which. Wow. Uh, Congrats. Uh, yeah. So I'm very excited. Wow, I should read it. I have to admit that I didn't do it yet, but okay. I should do it. I should, and, I, and I advise anyone like who is interested in that subject, it's, it sounds like really, really interesting. So we're almost done with time, but I want to go again into the subject of the future of AI. How do you see the future of AI in military operations evolving? And where do you think the biggest opportunities and challenges lie ahead? The robotics element is a big opportunity. At the same time, I would say that the biggest challenge in those spaces is the development of a proper DevSecOps pipeline and the standardization for solicitation to identify these new technologies. And that sounds, this is probably one of the most boring things ever, but the more yeah. technology I developed, <laughs> yes, it is boring. Yeah, it uh, is. The, the standards aspect is critical because what ends up happening is if the government will put out a solicitation saying it wants to buy a particular technology, 
What it's not telling you is that in order for them to employ that technology, you need something like an application programming interface, an API, or an SDK, standard developers kit, so that you can take one widget and connect it with another widget, and you don't have to pay for it on the back end. What people don't realize is when the government buys things, they compete things out, they buy a product, and then they want to connect all of them. They don't talk to each other because each company has its own proprietary way of doing things. Well, before they buy it, the government should be soliciting and telling the people how they want them to connect and what standard they want them to build towards so that they can connect things on the back end so it doesn't cause risk. In the future, I see the government trying to fix those problems to dramatically accelerate the speed with which things can be employed. And then when it comes to large language models, I, I just see it culturally as shifting towards using AI and trusting AI to help us make better decisions, but realizing of the limitations with those things and not losing it as a crutch for what we're trying to accomplish, but rather an enhancer. And as we go along, not just in things like large language models, but any form of artificial intelligence, that cultural and geographical divide will be shortened. And it's going to it's going to open up a tremendous number of opportunities for the defense and commercial spaces within these technologies. However, it's also going to force us from a policy and a political standpoint to confront the implications of long term application and specifically the adverse effects of creating open source artificial intelligence, which I think is the biggest issue. You should not create something that's incredibly powerful and then just hand it to anybody to use however they want. You should definitely limit. So there's a difference in the United States. You have the Google approach, and then you have the uh, ChatGPT, OpenAI approach. Microsoft. They open it. Yeah, open now Microsoft. Yeah. Right. So those approaches are uh, the originally before Microsoft did the full purchase of all of that. The OpenAI's approach was, I'm just going to make it available. Here's an API. Hook it up. But then there were ways to get around any of their contingent, any of their limitations they put in place, so that people could do nefarious and bad things with information they could get gather. Google said, you can use it for this application specifically when it supports your email, you can do this. And it only allows several different steps beyond that because they're like, we don't know what it'll, what decisions it'll make beyond that. And if, if we don't know, then why would we give that to the public? And those are the kind of things that need to be addressed at both a political and policy level, as well as a corporate level so that we limit that. The, 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 the scary version of the future is that we just continue to post these things openly for anyone to manipulate. The better version is we recognize the limitations of what we do and do not want it to do. And then we build policy around that. And then we are much safer because of it. So you're for the regulations and all the laws. And I know the all the head of companies dealing with AI, the biggest companies went to, I think, Biden, if I'm not mistaken, and they had like signed, a, I don't know exactly, like a law or a regulation saying that this is the limitations of the use. So yeah, far. one of the big ones is is a lot of neural networks operate as kind of a black box. And people don't know what, what they're really doing and how they, because like I said, they create models and the models are based on statistics. And the statistical application is based, is really uses how much it weighs and, and weighs certain things versus others. It really comes down to that. Why Why do they prioritize one decision over another when it makes that decision? Inside the neural network, they a lot of these people that are employing these technologies, they don't know why it makes those decisions. And that's the problem. The regulation, in my opinion, should be more on if you don't understand what your technology can really do and why it's making those decisions, it should not be publicly available. And that you can say that's going to hold things back, but why would you want something like that completely just out in the open? You don't know what decision it's making. 
Um, I can give a whole bunch of different examples, but we're out of time of why that would not be the, what, what you'd want to do. And it, I'm, I'm not a proponent of big government. I'm not a big proponent of every, of the government constantly stepping into and, and get and limiting people's innovative opportunities. However, when it comes to something powerful, we do that. We come in and we say, this is the only application that we will allow at this time. And we want it to be understood because we don't want it to have adverse effects on our society. And that's ultimately what I, they need to be educated on. I think the European Union is doing a better job, the United States, for example, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah. And I think that most people, when they think about AI, they think about, I think, their work, so the future of work. And afterwards, they would think about robots and, and the military and protecting themselves and the police using robots, so forth. But the first thing that they would think about is the implications for the workforce. Would it take my job? That's like the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, and I think that when they're talking about it, the main thing that they're talking about is like um, looking at it as a GDPR for AI. Like, where do you protect the data? How do you get the data? Do you have the rights for the data? And okay. so forth. And less about the implications for society as I see it. Yeah. Well, that's all those levels. Where are they getting data? Just like you said. Are we pulling it from people's licensed information? A lot of times these databases, they don't know. There's the problem. No. If you don't know where your data is actually coming from, then why are you putting it out in the public? You're just, that's a huge liability. Right, right. Okay, last question would be, what's your number one tip for AI entrepreneurs? To uh, become smart at, so th this initial phase right now is about learning prompt engineering, just learning how to take advantage of those tools. However, in the future, prompt engineering, probably in about five years, is going to be less of the thing that everybody should be focusing on because they're going to be, the prompts are going to become more advanced and they're going to need to know, know less of them. However, to be smart at it, it's okay to start playing with tools, start looking at ways you can and do it. However, at the same time, recognize that you can't be good with AI unless you're good at your job to begin with. And so right. you can't be a, a good writer by using AI to supplement any creative writing capability. You got to practice writing. Example. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Okay. I want to thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure and really insightful talk. So thank you, Jim. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. And I want to apologize for my dog next time. She will not be here. Yeah. Next she time. wants to be interviewed. I think that's the problem. So she has lots to say, but I don't know right, <laughs> right now. Right. So, yeah. so I'm sorry for that. And, and I really hope that people would listen to the interviews. It was really, really interesting. So Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And to all of you changemakers out there, thank you for joining us. And if you found this episode valuable and insightful, you're invited to share it. And I'll see you next week with another innovative, insightful talk. See ya. Yay. I'm Adima Zaukario, and you've been listening to the Invincible Innovation Podcast make sure to visit our website, invincibleinnovation.com, where you can learn more about our programs and my book, Innovating Through Chaos. I'll be waiting for you next week in our next episode. Thank you for listening.